I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. The Intercooler podcast is sponsored by JBR Capital, one of the UK's leading car finance specialists. Now, we only partner with like-minded organizations who really understand what it means to be a car enthusiast And JBR Capital is a perfect fit for us. It's run by people who really love cars. And importantly, vehicle finance is all JBR Capital does. That alone is what the company exists to do. So whether you're looking to fund a classic sports car, supercar or hypercar, see what JBR Capital can do for you. And it's not just about very high-end, expensive unobtainium. In fact, the minimum borrowing is £25,000 and the average £80,000. Head to JBR Capital on social media or jbrcapital.com online and tell them the intercooler sent you. Right, let's get on with this week's podcast. Welcome to the Intercooler Podcast. Hello, everybody. Welcome to episode 96 of the Intercooler Podcast. I'm Dan Prosser, not with Andrew Frankel this week. Yeah, this week's episode is going to be a little bit different. On the app, on the Intercooler app for subscribers only, we run what we call TI Super Podcasts. They're they're for app subscribers only and they're guest-based. So we we always have a guest on. And this time, to give the general TI audience a flavour of what it is that we do with these TI Super Podcasts, we decided to make this one available on general release, as it were, so anyone can listen to it. It's an interview with TI writer and former F1 driver, former Le Mans driver, Karun Chandok. Um, who's a brilliant guy, insightful, just good company, good to talk to about racing. Um, We talk about his early career, about his start in India. We talk about when he first came to the UK and he explains what it's like for an Indian driver to test through a British winter for the first time. He also talks about his time in F1 and some of the stuff that he's up to now, including his Sky F1 punditry. I think it's a good listen. So, He also talks, actually, about how good he sort of assesses himself 
as a racing driver. He talks about how good he actually was. And he just speaks very frankly, very honestly, very openly. I think it's interesting to hear a racing driver talk in that way. So have a listen. I hope you enjoy it. Um, And if you want to hear more TI Super podcasts, download the Intercooler app and subscribe. Thank you. Welcome everybody to this TI Super podcast. And my guest today is Corinne Chandock, former F1 driver, former Le Mans racer, now a Sky F1 pundit, and most importantly of all, a TI writer, um, an insightful guy. Corinne, I always learn something about motorsport when I hear you speak or when I read your words. Um, more than anything, though, uh, you're one of those guys, and I think the Frankitis are the same. They're just huge motorsport buffs. They're massive motorsport fans who got to live that dream by being a professional racing driver. Do you see it that way? In some ways, yeah, I think so. I think, um, you know, it goes back to the root of why we became racing drivers, and that's because we were passionate fans of the sport in the first place. Um, you know, certainly for me, I think, like like Dario and Marino, who you mentioned, you know, we, we, uh, we're fans at heart of the sport. We obviously loved the experience of driving the cars and, and wanting to be racing drivers and becoming racing drivers. Uh, but even now, you know, we're, we're the... We're the fans who are sitting there who would watch and follow most forms of motorsport and like going to places like Goodwood and spend hours drooling over all the different cars and sights and sounds and chatting with people that um, you know you you get to meet in this wonderful business so yeah you know, I think I think the passion comes certainly from being a, a fan of the sport first yeah and, you, and that's what makes you good at what you do you're a fan of the sport you're a student of the history of the sport and so you understand it and that's why it's interesting to hear what you have to say so we spoke um a couple of weeks ago and i was surprised when you told me that you've never raced a cart um and compared to other people who pursue careers in f1 that probably means you've missed out on eight to ten years of learning yeah um yeah absolutely big hindrance i think so you know when you think about the concept of muscle memory and building that repetition into the nervous system of your body uh, where everything just becomes second nature it's it's completely uh, you know factual that what the kids learn in karting is going to benefit them through their entire career and you look at the entire you know world of formula one today these are all young drivers who've done between six and eight years of karting um but you look outside of our sport right you know i was was watching an interview with um, rafa nadal after he's won the australian open and he was talking about how from the age of three, he was out with Uncle Tony on the tennis court hitting balls and just building that muscle memory of, um, you know, of the ground strokes. And it just, so, I, you know, I think, look, I, I had to play with the cards I was dealt with, right? You know, I grew up, I was born and raised in India. We had no kart tracks at the time. We had no karting championships at the time. That's changed, you know, all of that exists now, but it didn't exist when I started. And... So, you know, I don't, I can't change the past. You just have to get on with it. But unquestionably, there was a, there's a disadvantage to that. So I think you started at about 16, didn't you, in a, a little a single-seater thing that's, I think, specific to India. Can you tell us about, about that car and about that championship? Yeah, it's called the Formula Maruti. Um, I wrote a column about it. I think that there's a picture uh, on the yeah. TI app and, and yeah. website soon. So I think um, it's probably comparable to Formula First, that you had in the UK and, and other parts of Europe, something similar. 
Uh, I think Germany had Formula Koenig, where people like Schumacher started. Yeah, a little 800cc engine out of a road car with a four-speed H-pattern gearbox, again, straight from the road car in a little tubular frame. So, very, you know, small, light cars, only 300, and, I think they were 320 kilos, if memory serves me right. Wow. Um, so, yeah, yeah really, really tiny. But it's only an 800cc engine. Um, I mean, it had, I remember when we put the engines on the dyno, a good engine would be all of 44 horsepower or 45 horsepower. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, I am talking A tiny. monster. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, and, and, but if you think about it, at that level, if you hired an engine that had 46 instead of 45, you were suddenly flying and, you know, um, yeah, it was great fun, you know, good. And actually the competition was good. There were a whole bunch of us. Young drivers have started at the same time, and I'm, I'm still friends with some of them. Um, you know, we we all would have a sim, we would have similar age between sort of 16 and 19, uh, and all racing uh, together and and battling each other and crashing into each other and going testing for hours together. Um, it's great fun. Um, but I I it's funny I look back um, and I've been involved in the sport now for you know basically my whole life, but I raced in 2000 in, in India and that was the last time I raced in India. It's been, it's been 22 years since I last raced there, um, which is quite odd, really. Yeah. So, okay, I want you to put all ego and modesty to one side, right? And just tell me, when did you know that you were good? At, at 16, did you get in it? And did you, was it immediately obvious to you that, aha, I, I, can, I can do this? I think uh, it, it was probably when I competed my first season of racing in that Indian Championship. Because I actually did two. I raced a saloon car championship with Suzuki Swift alongside the single-seater one. And um, I, I think it was probably that because in this, long story short, but we had various issues with the car and the single-seater ones. The chassis cracked. and we were in, So I missed half the season on that. Um, but in the saloon car championship, I was racing against people who had been doing it for years. There were people who basically been racing against my dad. And at my first race, I got pole position, passed this lap, and won the race. And I ended up winning, you know, I think I won seven out of the ten races that year in that championship against people who had been doing it for 15, 20 years. So from an Indian context, you know, I thought, okay, I'm obviously, I'm obviously reasonable. Um, and able to drive a car. Um, so, yeah, I th- but I think until and unless you actually compete and win at something, you, you don't really know. Yeah. And uh, so I think, I'm not, I'm not sure why this is, um, and perhaps it's just something I've picked up on, but I think there's a perception that you might have come from bottomless pits of family money to get you through racing, or that you had enormous sponsors from home in India backing you all the way through. Um, we don't need to do it in detail, but I suspect that's not quite the case. And actually, there were points, weren't there, where you really thought this racing dream was grinding to a halt? Oh, it was probably every winter. Um, you know, my, <laughs> <laughs> um, no, listen, I, I was very lucky. My, my, my family were willing to take out a second mortgage on the house and sell every everything they had to to you know, give me the chance to come to Europe and go racing. But, you know, we, it it took us, I think we, you know, the debt that got built up in the first six years took us another 10 to recover from. 
um, and that's the reality of it. So it took um, you know a huge effort from everyone around me, um, you know, to go out there and we raise the money. And um, but I never had the full budget. If you know, I, I look at when I was doing Formula Three, you know, we had less than three hundred thousand, um, and people like Nelson Piquet, um, Will Power. Uh, you know, there were other drivers in there um, who, you know, they they were well into the 500s at that stage. So there's there's significant difference, you know, when you're talking that sort of budget. When you look at, I went to GP2, we had not, you know, we had, I think I had probably 300,000 euros to do GP2 and a full budget at the time was 1.8 million. I got lucky that Red Bull Red Bull came along at the right moment because at that stage I was I was about to stop and take up a job as a team manager for a team, so it was all done and dusted. And then Red Bull came along at the right moment, put a bit of money in, but we still only had, in total, I think that first year Durango we had seven hundred thousand euros as opposed to one point seven, one point eight that other teams and other drivers were spending. So um, you know and that has a huge knock-on effect, right? It means you, you know, you you don't change the brakes as often, you don't change. You don't have engines rebuilt as often. You don't. There's so many things that lead directly to performance and lap time, um, let alone, you know, going testing and all this. So, I mean, I, I couldn't afford to have a personal trainer or a physio, which if you look at kids like Lando and sort of modern, you know, a lot of the young drivers, that's just unheard of. They, they wouldn't even comprehend that. I the, the first time I had a personal trainer or a physio who came with me to the races was when I got to F1. Um, wow. And uh, so, yeah, look, it, it's, a. Uh, um, I think it, it's, I think it's easy to, for people who don't know the backstory to assume that I get it. Um, but I think, you know, I had to work bloody hard at going out there to raise commercial sponsorship out there. And I was fortunate to have good Indian companies, at key moments that supported me along the way, um, as well as companies like Red Bull, you know, on a, on a, and Tag Heuer and people like that on a global level. It's, I th- th- do you know what, if people want to see a really good account of your career from your, from your, you know, from the horse's mouth, they should go and watch the interview on YouTube that you did with Mario Muth. I don't know if I'm getting his surname right there, but it's a, it's a lovely video and it, it details your career um, and it's a great account of it. So people should check that out if they want to know more. We're not going to do it here. But I think it's about 20 years ago since you came to the UK. Well, it's, it's in fact, Dan, it's, as we record this, it's 20 years and three days. Wow. So there, you <laughs> there you go. Pretty good timing. Um, and so what, what caught my eye when I heard you talking about this was that you'd never really driven in the rain before because you said... In that part of Asia, if it rains, it's monsoon rain and the red flag's out. So I just, t- just tell me about the first time you found yourself in the winter in, the, in England or in the UK, maybe in Pembrey or Snetterton, freezing cold, conditions you've never seen before. What on earth goes through your mind? I just kept spinning. We, we were at, <laughs> it was at Pembrey. I came to do a test in October 2001 with Carlin in Formula 3. And... The whole concept of cold tires and, and, you know, needing to build the temperature up slowly and, um, you know, having low grip conditions and dew and dampness on the ground, it, you know, it's all just so alien to me. Um, you know, the, the whole, and then it carried on into early 2002, where you'd go winter testing in 
Donington, you know, A, you've got the aviation fuel, B, then it's raining and three degrees. And I just couldn't comprehend how how low grip the whole, uh, you know, the whole experience was of driving a race car in the wet. Um, it was a massive shock to the system. And to be honest, it, it, it destroyed my confidence for a long time. It probably, it took me probably till May that year, the first four months I was, you know, deer in headlights. What am I doing here? This, you know, I'm not cut out for this. This is just going to be a disaster. Um, you know, you plug away and you plug away and you plug away and you, you see little glimmers of hope and you see little, little bits of data and little bits of, you know, lap time here and there at a session that thinks, okay, I'm, I'm not that far off. I can make it work if I just line these cherries up. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, you know, first coming here to race in Europe was a complete shock to the system after spending the first couple of years in Asia. Does that make the UK a good place to learn? And also, I suppose, all the different types of track that we have here in the UK. Presumably, as a youngster, those first couple of seasons, you're just absorbing infinite amounts of knowledge and experience. Yeah, I mean, I grew up probably five years in the first year that I came here to live. You know, I think the, it, it, it's, I, I, I think the UK is a great place for a, a young driver to learn to go single-seater racing. Uh, the tracks are difficult. You know, they're narrow, narrower than the European tracks in general, apart from Silverstone. So, you know, if you can be quick and competitive at tracks like Olden Park or Croft and, um, you know, even circuits like Castle Coombe, where we used to go through at Formula 3, they're really difficult because it's a short lap, Knock Hill, you know, they're short laps, sub, sub 50 second lap, I think, Knock Hill. Um, with a lot of corners and a narrow track and undulating, um, you know, layout. So if you could be confident and quick and competitive um, and gain a lot of confidence by driving these different weather conditions as well here in the UK, then I think you could go anywhere in the world, really, and be be strong. And I think, um, yeah, it's it's a great place for, for drivers to learn how to drive. So you got to F1. Um... And you did 10 Grand Prix that year and then won the next year. Um, how do you reflect on your time in F1? Are you, are you just glad sitting here now to have made it? I mean, I, you raced in the Monaco Grand Prix with Hamilton, Alonso, Button on the grid. Or do you actually think, do you have a, a racer's view of it and think, I never got a chance in an F1 car to show what I could really do? Um, I think I had the latter view for a period of time. Immediately after F1, I think um, certainly I'd say between 2012 and sort of 15, 16, uh, no, not in that long, probably 2012, 13, 14, I had that view where, you know, I, I just didn't feel like I had the opportunity to do it properly and to, to you know, have a proper go. Um, but then you sort of accept that, okay, that door is closed and you've got to, you got to move on with life and get on with life. And then now, actually, I look back at it and go for the num. If I look at the circumstances that took me on the path to F one, it it's mad, really, to think that somebody from India, you know, two continents away, was able to have the life I did for that ten year period and the risks that we took from a financial and um, you know family standpoint and you know literally you know, a few races here and then you run out of money and then it's, you know, you're just literally going hand to mouth uh, in terms of trying to get a budget to go racing. 
it, it you know in that respect then you start to think back actually it is it is quite an achievement um and also once you've been a formula 1 driver that can't ever be taken away from you you know as you say that that fact that you were on the grid with Schumacher and Alonso and Hamilton and all these people can never be taken away from you uh and that that means something in the wider world you know it obviously means something in the motorsport world but it means something in the wider world as well um and i think that's that's something you have to hang on to so tell us about your experience of f1 particularly the f1 team you were with hispania um i mean it was a small team a back of the grid team but was it a positive environment i think you've said that actually some of the people there were fantastic it's a team where there was a lot of um untapped potential really to be honest you know there were some great people in there they had a very good partnership with Delara and and actually you know you look at what Haas did you know Haas arrived in Formula 1 and was straight away in the midfield uh and that was with Delara and you know Delara built they're a very good car company and they build good good race cars but they for various financial and political reasons between Colin Collis and the Spanish side and Delara they all fell out with each other quite spectacularly and um it meant that we never got the car that we should have had you know the base of the car that race was the one that should have only gone to a hotel in Spain as a launch and we were meant to get a car with another massive upgrade which was 60 points of downforce which is about 3 seconds of lap time you know that would have put us into firmly in the midfield which funnily enough is where Haas was when they arrived with Delara so um i think there was a lot of untapped potential of that entire project uh, because the money wasn't there and the, then the internal politics was was exhausting i mean some of it now when you look back was was comical um <laughs> at the time it wasn't very funny but you know now when you look back it was comical like i remember coming to the pits in barcelona before fp1 i walked into the pits and as i walked in christian clean walked towards me and he was carrying his race suit and helmet and he's like what are you doing and he said i i'm going to drive the car and he's like no no i'm driving your car and basically he was scheduled to drive fp1 in my car and nobody even told me about it and, <laughs> um i looked at the car and it was so both of us because i i got on well with christian and i still do we both looked at the car and one side of the car had my name on it and the other side had his name on it so like well, what's going on here and um you know so some of that stuff was just uh, a little bit mad um but you know the experience you know that experience of being on the grid and all the mechanics and all the noise and the media and everybody goes away and there are only 20 of you well at that time there's 26 of us you're doing the formation lap and you go and line up on the grid and the rest of the world is gone and there are just you and 25 others on on the formula 1 grid that's pretty special you know when you you're driving around and you you look at it and go um and i remember i think that probably the third race of the year was malaysia and it was a wet qualifying and mercedes and uh, sorry mclaren and ferrari completely got the weather forecast wrong and all of a sudden you know lewis and fernando and the ferrari stuff was sitting next to us at the back of the grid um and it's pretty surreal you know when when you think of it as um in that respect so yeah um i think but my probably my favorite memory is got to be at the first race because obviously that was a culmination of a dream you know you um 
And when I got to the paddock in Bahrain, the first driver that came to say hello was Michael. And, you know, my, back in 94, 95, Michael was my hero. I had, a, you know, the poster on the bedroom wall and um, I was a massive fan of his. And so when he, um, and, it, you know, 2010, he had returned after sabbatical. This was the biggest star in Formula One by a long way at that point, because Lewis was, you know, had won one championship and was just getting going. But Michael was by far the biggest global Formula One star. And I was a nobody out of GP2. But, uh, you know, my very first day on the Thursday, the media day in Bahrain, he, he came and, you know, he introduced himself and just chatted, wanted to get to know a little bit about me, where I came from, et cetera, et cetera. And, um, you know, I just said, welcome to F1 and good luck for the season. And, you know, it, it was just, he didn't need to do that. But I, I always, always look back at that fondly and think, just what a nice guy. Um, mm. and, uh, that's brilliant. Yeah, that's probably my, yeah. my, you know, one of my favorite memories. Just think back then to that first Grand Prix. Um, so when I'm sitting at home and the five lights are about to go out at the start of the race, I can't cope. I can't bear it. My heart is racing. I, I, I almost want to just stand up and get out of the room and walk away. I just, I can't cope with the tension. But you're there in your car and the five lights are about to go off. Is it unbearable for you as well or are you just no. relishing every second? No, no, you're, you're focused on the job. That's, you're there to do, that, you know, you're, you're, don't forget that's what you've trained for through yeah. the junior categories and your formula racing. So you, you have to be respectful of the situation you're in and respectful of the other drivers, these other great names and world champions that you're surrounded by, but you can't be in awe of it. You can't be in awe of the situation because then you you don't do justice to your job, and um, I, I was very conscious of that. And so we know we, you were in a, a back of the grid car. Um, you've since driven front of the grid cars, I guess, in demos and so on. But just explain to me what a a comparatively slow F one car feels like to drive. Is it still leaps and bounds ahead of everything? Does it still tear yeah. your head off? Oh, yeah. I mean, <laughs> yes. you know, it's still... The the slowest car on the grid is still miles quicker than any other race car on the planet. You know, the, the slowest F1 car will still be three, three, four seconds quicker than a GP2 car or an LMP1 car, really. Mm. So it's, yeah. it's... And that's where people, I think, sometimes misunderstand the concept of, you know whatever team it was, whether it was Minardi back then or Haas last year or whatever, you know, they're still amazingly fast race cars. They just have less downforce. The, the basic, the, the biggest difference is downforce, right? You know, we, I, I'd say probably since the mid-90s, um, aerodynamics became the biggest differentiator in Formula 1. And uh, ever since then, it's just, that's been the exponential um you know, exponentially big um, differentiator between F, the top and middle and the back of the grid F1 cars is just aero and downforce. So, um, because once you get, if you have the downforce and the aerodynamics working properly, then everything else works better. The tires come into the operating window better. The suspension works better. Everything just works better when you have downforce. It is literally a driver's best friend. So, and, and that's the difference. You know, if you have more downforce, you go around the corners faster. Um, 
it's simple as that, really. I've, I've always suspected that for guys in those back-of-the-grid cars, the frustration must be that you can have a storming weekend, the weekend of your career, and you still finish 18th, and no one knows. Did you? Were you ever aware of that? Did you think you put in a qualifying or a race performance um, in your F1 time that really was the best you could possibly do and yet no one really noticed. Yeah, 100%. Um, you know, I think I think uh, I look back at uh, a race in Valencia for example. I remember um, you know, when I I you know, I was teammates with Bruno Senna that year and I was quicker than him all weekend long and you know, the I, I had a really good race. We we were definitely the slowest team on the grid by some margin that year. But I I finished some way ahead of him, but I also ended up beating, I think I beat um, Timo Glock in the in the Virgin Racing car as well. And, you know, it was just, it was just a good weekend, all weekend long. I, you know, I worked really hard. The engineers got the car dialed in into a good setup window. And, um, yeah, it, it just, it just worked really well. And, um, but, you know, as you say, it was anonymous. I finished, I actually finished 18th in that race. <laughs> <laughs> there you go um you know completely anonymous to the outside world uh, okay so as, as i said earlier um it'd be great if we could put all ego and modesty to one side and just have a truthful conversation you won championships on your way up the ladder you won races in gp2 you don't get to do that without being a damn fine racing driver but just tell me how good were you how did you compare to those sort of child prodigies that we see from time to time? And listen, I what, what were your strengths? I think I was. I think I was. Um, I would say I was probably in the very good category, and but not in the great category. Um, yeah, being truth. You know, if I look back at it, being truthful, I wasn't in the world champion category. Uh, I think there are very few drivers on the planet who are, and. Um, you know, I think the the reality was, I was in 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 the right team in the right car. I I was probably in in a position to have you know good strong results and maybe win some races and get podium things like that. Um, but I think you know there's there's a very small category of drivers at Formula One level. I, I'm talking about you know I think yeah. I think actually you know when you go to sports car level, I think I was probably better suited to sports car because one of the things. A couple of things I was very good at was, you know, tire looking after the tires, fuel management, and consistency. Um, I was I was always, you know, a, quite smooth in the way I drove, and I always was better at fuel economy at Le Mans, for example, than my teammates and managed the brakes and things like that. So, um, yeah, I would say I was, I was probably a better, um, a relatively better sports car driver than a than Formula One. But yeah, I think if being perfectly honest, I was I was probably in the very good rather than the great category. Mm. That's brilliant to hear a racing driver talk so frankly and honestly. Um, it's not very often that we get to hear that. So thank you. Um, and also, you didn't start until you were, what, 16 or something. You didn't drive in the wet until you were 18 or whatever it was. It's, it's not like you had that upbringing that a lot of these kids do these days, did you? Yeah, um, but you know they're all those are all excuses, really, aren't they? You know. Yeah, <laughs> fair play, <laughs> fair enough. Uh, okay, so nowadays, um, I think you're probably best known for your Sky F1 punditry work. Um, as I said at the top, I think your Sky's 
most insightful pundit. I just love listening to what you have to say. Um, but tell me about what that's like. I mean, you'll be at a track and some big flashpoint will occur. Um, perhaps it's Max and Lewis coming together at Silverstone. And then what happens? Does the producer say, Karun, we're coming down to you at the Skypad and we want a definitive verdict on what's gone on here. You've got all this pressure. It's an emotionally charged thing. That must be a difficult thing to deliver. Well, it is it is because, you know, you just know that there's so many there's so many people with 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 opinions nowadays. You know, it's just you know yeah. there's so many good things about the internet, but one of the bad things is that it's given every person on the planet a platform who and a, and a sense of anonymity where they feel that they can just hurl abuse and you know, shout opinions at you for um, just because they may disagree. You know, people don't, people seem to have lost that, and I'm generalizing, I should say, a lot of people seem to have lost the ability to just have a healthy debate and disagreement um, and agree to disagree at the end of it. And instead, if you if they disagree with you, all they do is hurl abuse at you and tell you you should be sacked and you're unbelievably biased and you <laughs> yeah. can't, they can't believe you're on television and blah, 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 blah. It's just, it's just tedious, you know? Um, so there is that pressure. And, but fortunately for me, I, I haven't ever really cared about that bit of it. You know, I, I, just, <laughs> I just do. That's the solution. I'm amused. I, I, it amuses me, you know? I mean, I screenshot some of the, the funniest um, and they're not funny. You know, they're funny to me because I'm, I guess I'm a, I'm a bit, I'm quite thick skinned and I don't take any of it seriously, but you can see why, you know, online abuse and trolling is such a real thing because it's, you know, if, if someone is a bit more sensitive to it, um, you can see why they'd be quite hurt <laughs> just by the way that, uh, you know, comments are thrown around. So, um, and it, it is, yeah, it, it's, it's an interesting, um, it's an interesting one, you know, but part of the job is to take on that pressure and to, you know, that's, that's what we're paid to do really is to give opinion and stand by that opinion, but equally, and, and, you know, you mentioned Lewis and Max at Silverstone, that, um, that was an interesting one because I started off going, it's probably 50, 50. And then actually I changed my mind as I watched it more and more. Um, you know, so, when the incident happened straight off the accident and the red flag and all that, I thought it was sort of 50, 50. And as it, as the, you know, the afternoon unfolded, I watched it again. I was like, mm, okay, Lewis really could have backed out of it a bit more. So I changed my opinion to 70, 30. And I think that's fine. You know, I think it's fine for someone to recognize that they, they, they made, you know, they haven't necessarily made a judgment instantaneously. Um, or if they have, then they're willing to learn and educate themselves and, and, and change their opinion. I think that's fine. Um, it is fine. It, and we as a society have lost that skill, largely. We, rather than be open and take on new information and adjust our point of view, which is the grown-up thing to do, by and large, we dig our heels in, don't we? And then shout louder. I mean, that's, I, you that's know, the, the Abu Dhabi last year has been ridiculous. You know, the fallout of that is just, it's, it's bonkers, you know. Even even yesterday, the people tweeting about it, um, you know, well, I'll show you. I, 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 I often do this every couple of days. But, well, quickly, 
yesterday's tweet, my, my top my top troll yesterday said, Karun, you should get the sack for being an incompetent, biased mother F you da 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 da. This will come back and bite you in the ass when you least expect it. Your sky buddies won't stick up for you. Karun has no backbone. Hashtag. And it's like, <laughs> this was yesterday's party. Uh, yeah. So anyway. Dear me. Um, but yeah, it's just like, and, and you know, the, that was in response to me saying that the, um, in the race in Abu Dhabi, the safety guard should have only been out for a couple of laps. Unfortunately for Michael Massey, when he made that decision, he got a bit screwed over because the brakes caught fire on the Williams um, and the extinguisher had to come out and it was two or three more laps. It's a bit unfortunate, but that's what happened. And, and they, you know, people just pile into that. And, and what they're not willing to even listen to is the next part of the sentence where I say, when he'd made the decision to leave the safety car out, he should not have let the lap cars pass or selected those five cars lap pass, which is which is, you know, giving it context. And I think that's the problem with this sort of clickbait, trigger-happy society we've got at the moment. Oh, completely agree. It's enormously frustrating. People react. They don't take the time to try and understand someone's point of view. Um, it's immensely frustrating. And yet, you and I, people in the media, the great privilege that we have is that we get to have a platform to express a point of view. Um, and I'm sure you treasure that as much as I do. It's a, it's a very special thing. Um, but that's the it's... point, though. I think it used to be a very special thing. And now social media has given it, made it less special because everyone feels like they've True. got a platform to express themselves. You know, every person, every third person can have a blog and this and that. But the trouble is they're not as well informed, nor are they yeah. willing to do the research. You know, you often... Yeah. You see these websites about, you know, around F1. There's, there's now dozens of these websites that have popped up and all these people are doing are sort of copy pasting bits and pieces of stories from from other people who go out there and go to the races and do the donkey work and do the research and you know spend their lives and their money and their time as uh, uh, you know trying to do their job properly only for it all to be sort of half-baked copy pasted into a clickbait article by some website who don't invest the time or money to do it properly, frankly, and aren't even accredited by the FIA. So um, it's a funny world that we live in now. Yeah, it, there's an enormous amount of noise out there, and it's a few lone voices that are worth listening to. Yours is one, and it's what we're trying to do with TI, it, you know, make it stand out from all that noise and have some authority. Um, okay, well, let's just do a couple of minutes on the 22 F1 season. It's just around the corner. I think we saw the first car today, didn't we, the Haas? Um, are you fired up? Do you think we're going to see some better racing? Do you think we're going to see the likes of McLaren and Ferrari competing for race wins more often? The truth is we don't know. I think only an idiot would predict who's going to be quick and who's not before the first race. Because, you know, I think this is singularly the biggest regulation change we've had in Formula One history between one season and the next. Um, unless you sort of, you know, you're going back to the 50s or 60s where they suddenly started allowing F2 cars into F1 and all that sort of stuff. So I think, um, um, you know, this is a massive, massive shift. Um, and I think it's therefore an opportunity for people to get it right more than others. Uh, I think we're going to see a huge amount of evolution in 
and just the way the cars change from the first race in Bahrain till even the halfway point when we get to Silverstone, frankly, before let alone the back half of the year. So I think there's there's just because we get to Bahrain and X, Y, Z are competitive, it doesn't mean that they'll be there at the end of the year. I think a lot's going to change throughout the season. Um, I think the usual suspects will be strong, right? I mean, Mercedes showed last year they got incredible strength and depth. They At the start of the year, they were behind. They were three, four tenths behind. And by the back half, back part of the season, the last four races, they had the quickest car, conclusively. So, you know, they showed just what a strong race team they are. Red Bull showed that, you know, Newey hasn't forgotten how to design race cars and they were strong last year. Um, I, I have this sort of niggling feeling that there's, there's, I think, something special coming from Ferrari. Um, I think they they should be closer to the fight this season, which will be exciting to watch. Uh, and we'll see, you know, I think uh, we'll just have to see. But I'm, I'm excited because it's it's new and we don't know. And that's what made last season great is we went to every race not knowing who was going to win. And on top of that, you've got George versus Lewis. You know, you've got um, Lando is going to be better than he was last season, where he was amazing already. And, you know, what the world champion Max going to be like you know is it you know that was never a bloke who was short of confidence but is it going to make him even more confident <laughs> coming back with the number one on his car there's got to be something special in that oh I just, I just can't wait it's not long now is it a few weeks um testing soon and we get to find out maybe get a little snapshot who is quick who isn't it's going to be really exciting um and I'm sure you'll be there to talk us through it all um but listen we'll leave it there thank you for your time it's yeah, it's brilliant to hear from you, Curran. You're, as I said at the top, you're you're insightful, you're knowledgeable, and it's just interesting to hear you talk about racing. No, absolute pleasure always. We should do it again. We will. Thank you. Cheers. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.